Well, if you have a Bible, turn with me to John chapter 19. We're going to be covering verses 16 through 30 uh, this morning. When we first moved as a family to North Alabama from Southern California, my son Luke, who was a rising senior in high school at the time, was invited to uh, practice with the varsity basketball team for the school in our area, uh, which was a big deal to us. We were encouraged by that. And then just after a few days of practice, he was given a spot on the team. So naturally, I was a proud father and excited for my son. I wasn't that I worried that he might not make the team. He had come from the varsity program of a school of 4,000 students in Southern California. So I had every reason to believe that he would make the team. But when he did, I was very excited. In fact, some might even argue I was too excited. I immediately got involved in the program uh, myself. I agreed to manage the team's Twitter account. I offered to produce videos, which I did. I was the official scorekeeper for Max Prep. I was very much entrenched in the program. In fact, I became a regular fixture at the gym in the evenings, which Luke wasn't exactly thrilled about. He said to me, he said, Dad, look, you, you don't run this program. This is not your program. You need to just kind of step back and chill. I said, I don't understand. What's the problem? I'm just trying to help here. He said, out of frustration, you can't be in the inner circle here. I, I said to him, but what does that even mean? He just repeated, you can't be in the inner circle. Now, much later, this is two years later now, we we're able to joke about that. In fact, during this shelter in place where we're we're uh, sort of consigned to the same uh, area. We will often repeat that phrase to each other. When we bump into each other in the kitchen, we'll say, look, what are you trying to do? Get in my inner circle. You can't be in my inner circle. Well, Jesus had an inner circle. It included three of his followers. John was one of those, the author of the gospel we've been studying for the last year. Years after walking with Jesus, John as this sort of old man hunched over from all his travels around by foot, probably with a long gray beard, John took time to write down all that he had seen, heard, and experienced with Jesus. And everything that John wrote would build toward and point to the event that we're looking at this morning, the crucifixion of Jesus. This is, as I've entitled this sermon, the event to which everything else points. Again, we're going to cover verses 16 through 30 of John 19. And we're going to, what we're going to do is we're going to let the cross speak for itself. And I think as we do that, we're going to see the cross is going to say something to us. As we look carefully at it, the cross will make, I believe, three life-changing statements. Last week, Pastor Adam uh, took us skillfully through John 18, where Peter denies Jesus, and Jesus has this incredible exchange with Pilate. Uh, and one of the things that becomes clear as you look at that exchange, which really bleeds over into chapter 19, is that Pilate doesn't really want to sentence Jesus to death. But Caiaphas, the high priest, the leader of the Sanhedrin, uh, fueled by the cries of the people, he insists on it. What Pilate really wants to do is release Jesus. Six times in one way or another, as I went back and counted them the passage, Pilate says something like, I don't find any fault in this guy. I don't really get it. I don't see the reason he should die. But Pilate has Jesus flogged, 
crowned with a ring of thorns, punched in the face, all so that the Jewish people might be satisfied with that. So they might see that and, and, and relent and show some sympathy. And we might think that this would do the trick. Floggings were, were brutal to watch. They involved the so-called criminal being tied to a stake and then thrashed with leather whips, which had at the end of them often pieces of bone or metal. So the skin was shredded, just a, a devastating thing. And then there was the crown of thorns. I have a friend who's uh, actually 86 years old. He's an arborist. An arborist is a person who is an expert or uh, studied the science of trees. And this is a man who taught at UCLA for years. He knows trees. He knows the scriptures. He has on his ranch in Southern California the, the type of tree that is uh, widely considered to be the one from which the thorns came. It's called the Paliurus spinacristi, or Christ thorn. Here's what it looks like from a few feet out. You can get a sense of the, the size of the thorns. Here's what it looks like up close. The thorns are an inch and a half long. They would, and what happened is they, they would pierce a person's skin. They would dig into a person's skin, which would cause profuse bleeding and, of course, incredible pain. Even though Pilate didn't see a reason to execute Jesus, he allowed Jesus to go through all of this with the hopes that the Jewish crowd would relent. But they don't. They cry even more loudly, crucify him, crucify him. So out of fear of the Jewish crowd, those who actually threatened to accuse Pilate of uh, himself not being true to Caesar, Pilate agrees to hand over Jesus. The Apostles' Creed, which has been the statement of faith for the Christian church for millennia, has that line concerning Jesus Christ. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate. Pilate will not only receive the judgment for his action, but his name goes down in infamy because of his unwillingness to follow his conscience, to, to, to resist the pleas of the crowd and do what he knew was right. So look with me at John chapter 19, verses 16 through 24, as this story unfolds. The word of the Lord reads this way. So they took Jesus, and he went out, bearing his own cross, to the place called the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him, and with two others, one on either side, and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the King of the Jews, but rather this man said, I am the King of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from the top to the bottom. So they said to one another, let's not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. Now I want to pause there because there's obviously so much to this. This is the, the central event of the Christian faith. It was not uncommon for those who were sentenced to die to carry their own crosses. In fact, this was a fairly normal thing, as were crucifixions themselves. John tells us that Jesus' crucifixion happened 
at the place of the skull, which is called that because if, you're, if you were there, you're standing at a distance, the actual mountain behind looks like a skull with the shadows and the indentations and the rocks. I've been there. It's, it's haunting. In fact, the whole thing is unforgettable. Again, even though crucifixions were common, they were reserved for the most hated of criminals. The Romans would put people to death by a variety of ways. Sometimes they would strangle people. Uh, sometimes they would burn people to death. Sometimes they would dip people in boiling uh, wax. All incredibly gruesome ways to die. But the cross, a crucifixion, sent a more lingering message. It was so humiliating. It was so obscene that the erudite and the sophisticated in the Greek and Roman worlds, they wouldn't even say the word cross around one another. Even though it wasn't a matter of conversation, though it did attract a large crowd. The Roman government would often hold crucifixions during major festivals so as to garner the greatest following, so as to attract the largest number of people. And such was the case here. It was the day of preparation for the Passover, which meant that tens of thousands, some even say a small millions of people, would gather at that time in Jerusalem. So everything about it was meant to shame the offender and his or her family. When a criminal was condemned to die, his offense would often be written down on a placard and then hung around that person's neck. Then when he was nailed to a cross, the placard would be affixed to the cross itself above, above the criminal's head. Well, on the placard that was placed around Jesus and ultimately on the cross itself, Pilate wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. It was written in Aramaic, it was written in Latin, it was also in Greek, which is very significant because this basically covered every language of the people. The religious folks spoke in Hebrew in an Aramaic dialect. The secular political world spoke in Latin, and the commercial world spoke in Greek. Everyone is covered here. The announcement of Jesus' regal authority is, is written in a language that everyone can understand. No one is beyond its comprehension. Now, here's the first thing I want you to see from this passage in terms of the way the cross speaks. The cross declares the global and undeniable kingship of Jesus. This theme of, of Jesus as king, it, it, it runs throughout John's gospel. It is particularly noticeable in, in chapters 18 and 19. But it's, it's everywhere we look. Now, what do I mean when I say Jesus' kingship is global and undeniable? Well, first global. I mentioned at the start of this message that everything John writes really points to, leads to the cross work of Jesus. Well, earlier in John's gospel, Jesus says, when I'm lifted up, I will draw all men to me. And then even earlier, if you go back way back to John chapter 3, Jesus says, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so also must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes will have eternal life. The drawing of all men is a reference to the inclusive nature of God's salvation. What I mean by that is none will be excluded based on race, based on color of skin, based on language, based on ethnic background, family lineage, socioeconomic status. Jesus will draw people from every state, color, age, 
sex, status, and nation, Gentiles as well as Jews. His kingship is global in that it will include people from every corner of the world who speak every kind of language who ultimately put their faith in Him. With this sign written above it that everyone could read, the cross becomes the international invitation to receive Christ as Savior and King. That's what I mean by global. But what about this word undeniable? Well, even on the cross, and when we think about it, this is an act of unparalleled humility, rather. Even on the cross, the kingship of Jesus, God in the flesh, is unmistakable and indelible. The people say to, to Pilate, look, don't write that he, he is the king of the Jews. Say, he says he is the king of the Jews. But Pilate says, what I have written, I have written. Even unwittingly, Pilate serves as the writer for the sovereign hand of God. Jesus is king of the Jews, and in fact, he is king of the universe. And every knee will bow before him, either in rueful submission as a condemned criminal en route to eternal separation from God, or in humble worship en route to a life of endless joy under Jesus' righteous reign. One of the things that I do pretty much every Sunday afternoon when I get home is after I have dinner and uh, sometimes after a nap, I will go to YouTube and I will watch the service and particularly I'll watch the sermon. And I try not to be seen by my kids when I do this because they always give me a hard time. Like, what, well, how much do you want to see of yourself? What are you, some kind of narcissist? The reason I, I do that is, is not because I want to see more of myself. It's because I want to continue to grow as a communicator, as an expositor of God's word. So while looking at it fresh, it helps me to see areas that I could have maybe said things more clearly. I'm always trying to improve on communicating clearly. I once heard Harry Reeder, who's a pastor of a big megachurch in Birmingham, just south of here, say that he spends most of his Mondays repenting of what he said on Sunday. Not, not that what he said was wrong, of course he's half-joking in this, but he's saying that in retrospect you're able to see things and maybe even ways to communicate better than in the moment. Well, a few weeks ago I looked back on how I talked about the fear of God from Ecclesiastes 3, and I realized I, I wish I would have said things a little differently. And when I talked about it, I said that to fear God is to recognize the utter otherness of God that he is majestic and powerful, the only solid foundation for all of time and eternity. And I said back then to fear God is to believe that he's still in control. He's still sovereign and majestic, even when things don't appear that way. And praise God, all of that's true. But there is an aspect of fearing God that means recognizing that he alone is terrifying in his glorious splendor. A consuming fire that, that engulfs and inflames all who would dare to stand against him. He is a holy God before whom all people must bow. He is the only king. But we prefer, I think if we're honest, to be in complete control ourselves. Kings of our own worlds. Author and professor Michael McClyman in his new book, The Devil's Redemption, a New History and Interpretation of Christian Universalism writes this, The culture of entitlement has increased over the past few decades on personal identity issues, 
And in some ways, we as modern Americans have become kings in our own minds. So that sense of entitlement and autonomy pulls all of us away from the idea that we are ultimately accountable to God. We don't want someone else telling us what to do. We don't want someone else telling us how to use our time. We don't want someone else telling us how to use our bodies. We don't want someone else telling us how to use our money. We want to be in control. We are desperate to remain in control of our own lives. This actually, this goes all the way back, of course, to birth. If you're a parent, you can think back on the first time when your cute, little, adorable child stared at you with a look that said, are you talking to me? And I don't know how far you, you have to go back. I remember my kids were very little looking at me with this, this glance of defiance, as if to say, I am in control here. We don't want to be ruled. Martin Luther said that our worst transgression is the one we inherited from Adam, and that is our desire to be God, to dethrone him to replace him and be our own God and King, which we all struggle with all the time. In the most fundamental way, we have transgressed the holy law of God by lusting after God's own authority, and we do it all the time. So we stand guilty before God, which is why the rest of this section is so important. What's next? The soldiers cast lots for Jesus' clothes as a fulfillment, John says, of the Scriptures. Earlier in John's Gospel, Jesus will make the point that all of Scripture, the whole of Scripture testifies to Jesus. It's all about Him. Which, of course, doesn't mean that every rock and river and moonbeam that we read about in the Old Testament is some way Jesus. But what it does mean is that every passage of Scripture, when considered in its broader context, is meant to point us to the finished work of Christ. Every passage, when considered rightly, actually creates a bridge that ultimately takes us to Jesus. Now, sometimes that bridge is, is not easy to see in the Old Testament. Sometimes it's very difficult to actually establish to see that bridge. Believe me, I know, I've been criticized, rebuked at times, even gotten in trouble one time for, for preaching a passage on Proverbs where I said actually found its fulfillment in Jesus. A man stormed up to me at, at the end of the service and said, I'm going to give you a mulligan on that one. I said, well, what do you mean? I, of course, I know what a mulligan is from playing golf, but I didn't know what he meant. What do you mean? He goes, there's no way that you can talk about the Proverbs and actually say that they point us to Jesus. I said, no, absolutely. Even Jesus says, in the upper room, the law, the prophets, and the, the ketavim, that Hebrew word for the writings, the psalms, the prophets, and so on, it all points to him. So yeah, it, it, it all points to Jesus. Sometimes it's hard to see, but sometimes it's in our faces clear. And this is one of those times. In Psalm 22, verse 18, we read, They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. This is literally fulfilled in the very event that we're reading about. In fact, this psalmic reference is meant to point readers to this powerful reality. Jesus' life and work fulfilled the Hebrew Scriptures. The promised one was actually hanging right in front of them. Now look at verses 25 through 27. This was to fulfill the Scriptures 
which says, They divided my garments among them, for my clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things. But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. And then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. You know, I made the point a couple of weeks ago that even at his darkest hour, Jesus' concern is for the, the well-being of, his, of others. And here it is again. Jesus is in agonizing pain, suffering the excruciating uh, pain that comes with propping up your body so that you can breathe, putting all your weight on nails that have been driven through your feet. And what is he thinking about? The well-being of his mother. What a Savior who is always thinking about others and the well-being of others. And not only is he arranging care for his mother, but he's doing something else, something profound. He is redefining family. Here's the second way the cross speaks to us, our second point. The cross creates a new family, a community established by faith not blood. We might even say it this way. From Jesus' perspective, true relatives are determined not by the blood that courses through our veins, but by the blood that he shed on the cross, the blood that made it possible for us to be forgiven and united to God as his children. Now think about this. The very first words that Jesus says from the cross, at least from John's gospel, are words caring for his mother and his best friend. Woman, behold your son. And to the disciple, behold your mother. On the cross, a new first family is established and, and a new priority. We unite with, we love, we care for, we pray for, we serve, we give to her, we sacrifice all for one another as believers. This, this new faith family established by Jesus at the cross so that we are strengthened and equipped to go out and serve and love and share with the world the truth of the gospel. New Testament scholar Frederick Bruner writes this, Jesus is not only taking care of his mother and his friend in filial and fraternal loyalty. He is more significantly creating the new family of the people of God, the community of those who will bear faithful witness to him in the huge surrounding world. From now on, the cross creates a new family. And of course, it keeps getting better. Look at verses 28 through 30. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scriptures, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there. So they put a sponge full of sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Now there's so much in that phrase, I thirst, that may not be evident or obvious on the surface. There's, there's so much in there when we think about what Jesus is saying. The fact that Jesus says he thirsts means more than just he needs something to drink. Now, was he thirsty? <laughs> Absolutely. He's hanging on a cross under the heat of the Near Eastern desert sun. Yeah, he's absolutely thirsty. He's probably dealing with dehydration. He needs something to drink. 
But there's so much more to that. Notice what John says in verse 28. After this, knowing that all was finished, to fulfill the scripture, Jesus said, I thirst. What scripture could Jesus, Jesus have had in mind? Well, it's the one that John already referenced, Psalm 22, which reads like this. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd. My tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. Now, how does that psalm begin? It begins this way. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you going so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? In the Bible, the concept of thirsting is a metaphor for spiritual emptiness and even death. In the writings of the prophets and the Psalms, when people are said to be away from God, far from God, they're said to be thirsty. There's this beautiful picture we saw a couple of months ago when we looked at John chapter 7. Uh, the ones who are lost, the ones who are estranged, the ones who are confused, separated from God, are said to be dying from thirst. In Jeremiah chapter 2, God says, you have dug cisterns from your, for yourselves. You've, you've dug these other wells in order to, to find satisfaction, but they'll never deliver because you are apart from me. The idea is that there's something that our soul needs. Every bit as much as the body needs water. And what is it? It's God's approval. It's God's blessing. It is God receiving us. We need this more than anything else in life. And what is going on at this moment? God has rejected His Son. And because of it, Jesus says, I thirst. All the physical torment, all the beatings, the thorns that I showed you, the picture, all those things, nothing compares to this. Jesus suffered the wrath of God against the sin of the world. Jesus suffered the wrath of God that even though he himself was sinless, he suffered God's punishment. The other day I went through two fast food drive throughs in one day, which is unusual for me, uh, something Pastor Chris loves to do. Um, it did happen on this date. In both cases, when the employee handed me my food, she said, have a blessed day. It's not uncommon when we talk to one another to say, God bless you. We end our emails like that, blessings. We meet in phone calls, even conversations with casual strangers. We say, blessings. There's nothing wrong with that necessarily. I was driving to the grocery store just the other day, and I stopped at the light behind a very dirty 4x4 that had a sticker in the upper left-hand corner of the window that said, God bless America. We invoke God's blessing all the time. But we would never say to someone, God curse you, at least not someone we cared about. We would never say to someone, may God turn his back on you and demonstrate against you his sore displeasure. The curse of God is something that even the most staunch non-believers would not want wished on them. But the reality is we live in a cursed world, a world itself that's under God's curse because of the sin of our first parents, 
That's why I don't like to do yard work, because weeds and thorns and thistles, all these things. The world is cursed. We ourselves are born under the curse of God because of the sin we inherited and the sin that we reenact over and over again by our rebellion. So, so the curse of God rests on the world. But at one point in redemptive history, God's curse extended even further and to agree and in a way that we cannot fully comprehend with our finite human mind. On the cross, Jesus became a curse for us. In order to satisfy God's wrath, which was rightly held against the whole world, Christ died for a people who were themselves cursed to die. And not only did Christ die, he died in the most heinous way possible as a demonstration in all its offensiveness that the, that the curse of God rested on him. In Hebrew thinking, the curse of God, the concept of curse is understood in sort of direct antithesis to the idea of a blessing. God's blessing meant to behold the unveiled face of the benevolent God. It meant to be in the presence of God, to have his face shine on us. God's curse meant to be removed from the blessed presence of God, utterly cast away from His benevolent face. Yes, Jesus was beaten for us. He was bruised for us. He was speared for us. He even died for us. But plenty of people could do those things. But only Jesus could take on God's wrath for us. Only Jesus could experience eternal death, eternal punishment for us. Only Jesus could suffer the rejection of God for us so that we could be accepted by God by faith alone. On the cross, God turned his face from Jesus, which was not just the fulfillment of prophecy, although it was that. It marked the completion of Jesus' life mission. This is why Jesus said, It is finished. And bowed his head and gave up his spirit. These are the three most important words that Jesus ever uttered. And they form the basis for the foundation for every Christian sermon. It is finished. What did Jesus mean? Well, we could have a, a sermon series, of course, on just those three words. They, they appear in the Greek language in the perfect tense, which means they represent a past act that has a continuing present tense force. Here's what the word looks like as it appears tattooed on my oldest son's arm. To telestai. It means that a work has been brought to its completion, its telos, its conclusion, its end, even to its perfection. We could, we could easily translate this way as Jesus saying, I've done it. I've done it all. The effects are endless. These words carry spiritual, relational, physical, even cosmic implications. But said most simply, explained most simply, they just mean this, that Jesus fully accomplished the work he came to do. He has glorified the Father by his complete and final obedience, even to the cross. He has loved his people to the end which, by the way, is the same Greek word, to the, to the telos. He has offered himself as the once-for-all sacrifice for the sins of his people. He has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. He has brought us to God. 
Tim Keller paraphrases Jesus' words, it is finished this way. says Jesus was really saying this, I have traversed the infinite distance between you and God. There's not one inch left. I have done everything necessary to bring you right into his arms. There's not one thing left for you to do at all, period. And then he bowed his head and died. Here's our final point this morning. As far as the cross speaking to us, the cross shouts the completeness of forgiveness, total and unalterable reconciliation with God. The moment you first put your trust in Jesus Christ, you are totally and completely forgiven. Because of the work done for you, not because of anything in you or anything you have done, not because of anything I've accomplished, anything I've completed, simply because of the work of Jesus Christ. When you put your faith in Jesus, you are brought into the arms of God, regardless of anything you've ever done. You are a beloved child of God. There's nothing else you need to do. There's nothing else you can do. The work is complete. Now someone might say, well, what about all the commands in the scriptures to pray and to read the Bible, to gather in community, to, to mortify the flesh, all of those things. And what I would say, those are beautiful, wonderful means by which God strengthens the faith of his people, by which he increases our joy in him, by which he deepens our understanding of him and his grace, by which he sustains us and preserves us. But none of those things move us one inch closer to God positionally. When you put your faith in Jesus, you are as close to God as you could ever be positionally. You belong to him. He is your God and you are his child. If you have believed in Christ this morning, you are safe in the arms of God. Because of God's love and the loving obedience of Jesus Christ even unto death. And this is important because as we just talked about a few moments ago, we have lusted after God's power. We resent his authority over us. We constantly choose to follow through with our own selfish desires. Our desire for autonomy manifests in an, in an endless myriad of ways. In fact, the Apostle Paul would say in his indictment against all humanity, they are inventors of evil. In other words, we just keep making up ways to sin against God. We keep finding new ways to offend and transgress against this holy God. But that's what makes the cross so beautiful. Jesus has lived the life we refuse to live, died the death we deserve to die, and he has risen out of our punishment. And that's next week. All so that we could receive forgiveness and be brought to God. Let me say to you, wherever you are, maybe you're on your couch or you're at the kitchen table. Maybe you're propped up in bed by pillows. Maybe you're, you're sitting around with your kids. Let me say this to you. If you are in Christ, no matter how you may feel at this moment, you are glorious in God's sight. You are at objective peace with God because of what Christ has done. You may feel guilty. You may feel ashamed. You may feel weak. Maybe this whole pandemic has exposed in you a litany of idols you never knew about. The idol of comfort. The idol of security. The idol of human praise, which you can't get because no one is around you. Maybe this has exposed all kinds of idols in your heart. 
Maybe being sheltered in place has revealed your tendency to sinful anger, your tendency to worry, your tendency toward greed. Whatever it may be, right now you are reconciled to God in Christ and you have nothing to fear. Your debt has been paid. All the riches of Christ are yours. You are loved by God with a, deep, with a love so profound that it leaves us marveling and asking the question rhetorically, how deep is the Father's love for us? So vast and beyond all measure. Let's pray. Father in heaven, comfort us this morning with a recognition of your love. Stir our hearts with joy in the reality of the finished work of Jesus. May those three words ring in our souls at the deepest level. It is finished. By faith, we are reconciled to you. And Father, I want to pray for that person this morning who is overwhelmed with guilt, who is worrying, who is sick with anxiety. For the person who realizes now, maybe more than ever, that she is angry, an angry person. She gets sinfully angry. He is a greedy person. He gets sinfully greedy. All of those things, whatever it may be, Lord, will you comfort us with the cross which screams, which shouts the completeness of forgiveness in Jesus. May it be so in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.